regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. Uh, my guest today is Julia Strattenstahl, a product manager at Fishtown Analytics, the maker of the popular open source project DBT. Prior to joining Fishtown, Julia was an investor at New Enterprise Associates, where she spent her time investing in infrastructure, developer tools, open source, and data startups. She currently sits on the boards of Sentry and Metabase while being an active angel investors. Julia graduated from Stanford University with degrees in computer science and management science and engineering. So Julia, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Fantastic. While doing the homework for our conversation, I believe you um, are a New York City native and later became a San Francisco transplant. So can you share a bit about your upbringing as well as the major differences living in both the East Coast and the West Coast? Yeah, so I grew up in Manhattan, so I'm a city kid, and I moved out to the West Coast to go to Stanford. And, you know, my parents always joked that when I moved out West, I would never come back. And over a decade later, I guess that was true. I think both cities are really different in some ways and similar in others. There's a high density of interesting people in both cities. They're both professionally oriented. But of course, the sphere of power in New York is finance and the sphere of power in San Francisco is technology. But both are great cities. I really enjoy being out here both because I'm interested in tech and I also love the outdoors. So the Bay Area is great for that. Was there any reason that you become interested in tech growing up? I was always interested in kind of difficult, challenging problems and was drawn to engineering. I think my interest for technology really blossomed when I got to Stanford. And I find that the people in technology are really optimists and they like to paint a future of what the world could be. And being around those types of people is really exciting for me. So talking about your undergrad experience at Stanford, you actually double major, if I'm correct, in both computer science and um, management science and engineering. So how was your overall experience at Stanford? And what were some of your maybe favorite classes and activities that you got involved with during undergrad? Yeah, so I started studying management science and engineering when I first got to Stanford, and it's really a multidisciplinary major within the School of Engineering. You get a taste for finance, some statistics, operations research, and you go an inch deep in a bunch of different engineering disciplines. And I was drawn to that major in particular. I think growing up in Manhattan, the finance angle really intrigued me but started taking CS classes. It was new to me when I arrived at Stanford and really liked the meteor problems, stretched myself intellectually, and ultimately decided to double major in computer science later on um, in my junior year. And I loved Stanford. Stanford is such a unique place. The energy on the campus is really special because 
you have this confluence of entrepreneurs, people trying to solve hard problems, and you get exposed to lots of exciting people and companies while you're a student there. So that was really exciting for me. I was fortunate to take a smattering of classes across finance and engineering. And one of the clubs I was really involved with was Stanford Finance, where I was the president and that helped train people for professions in actually the finance industry. Just out of curiosity, what is it to be the differences between the relevant skill set that you learn from a CS major versus like in finance classes? How do you see the difference between those different mindset? I think there's more creativity in software development than there is in finance. Finance teaches you a lot about making sure that the details are right. You have to think also critically about lots of numbers and make sense of them. So you're engaging a similar part of your brain, the quantitative side. I think in engineering and software development, though, you you start off with different questions and problem spaces that you can tackle of, this is my end goal. How do I actually build something to get me there? Whereas in finance, the challenge is you have a lot of information to make sense of. And how do you use financial tools and techniques to come away with great insight? Thanks for sharing those differences. Up to graduating from Stanford, you uh, spend the next two years as an investment banker at Catalyst Partners in San Francisco office, where you have advised on over 37 billion worth of M&A transactions with software, internet, and networking companies. So reflecting back on that current phase of yours, what was your proudest accomplishment at Catalyst? Yeah, when I joined Catalyst, it was almost a startup investment bank, which is a funny way to describe a financial institution. But They were just getting started and they do one thing really, really well, which is sell-side advisory for tech companies. They work with some of the most exciting tech companies in the world. And during that critical moment of when they're thinking about selling themselves, they engage catalysts to help with that process. And certainly the capstone deal for me that I was really excited to work on was the LinkedIn Microsoft transaction where Catalyst helped advise LinkedIn in selling itself to Microsoft for $26 billion. And it was a really interesting deal that had lots of twists and turns all the way up to the last minute. So for sure, that was my proudest moment because friends and family who weren't really in the tech world could appreciate what LinkedIn is because of their audience and how it's global in nature. But the other thing I really loved about Catalyst is the people I got to work with. I made some of my closest friends at Catalyst because you work around the clock, you're in the office and your life and work become really blended. And so I was fortunate that I got to spend a lot of hours with really interesting, bright people who are now some of my closest friends. Well, this is also like your first job. And I think kind of what you allude there is that being in, in that environment where you said you work around the clock and that really like cultivate a strong work ethic, right? Early in your career. Maybe can you like paint a picture of how that actually looks like on a, I don't know, like a typical day as an investment banker, because um, I'm just like, curious to how that work ethic actually manifests itself into, you know, a day-to-day responsibility. Yeah, yeah I have selective memory now and <laughs> mostly positive memories from my time at Catalyst. But you really do work very long hours. You have a high bar for what the quality of your work needs to be, and they have lots of 
of practices in place and habits that you create so that your work is correct because it does need to be, can't just be 90% there. It has to be a hundred percent there when you're dealing with transactions of this magnitude. And so your day-to-day, you spend a lot of time in Excel modeling different valuation techniques for companies, doing comps analysis, DCF analysis. At Catalyst, it was mostly for live transactions. So anything could pop up. You get a new term sheet. You have to respond to a different acquirer. You lose interest in a deal. Lots of interesting strategic chess that happens in the course of making a deal come from just the beginning to fruition. So it was an exciting and definitely busy period of time. And it does sound like you, you learn a lot given the hashtag environment of these deals, right? Be comfortable dealing with the stress and learning a lot was super crucial as you uh, get into your professional part. In 2016, you joined new enterprise associate as an uh, associate investor. How did this opportunity come about? And I guess more importantly, it's like what motivated you to make a career transition from investment banking into venture capital? Yeah, for me, it was a pretty natural transition. I talked a lot about my interest in both finance and technology. This was a decision to get closer to the tech product and company. In Catalyst, you know, we were involved at transaction level, so we came in at a critical moment in the life cycle of a company when the company was getting acquired and then moved on to the next deal. So it was really transaction oriented. For me, I had a lot of personal passion around technology product and companies. And it made a lot of sense to go into an investing role where you got to think more of these kinds of problems than just the financial problems that I dealt with as an investment banker. And, you know, NEA was a great spot for me because they were a one fund model, which meant you did early and growth investing out of the same fund. So when I was starting out, I had the opportunities to see both really early stage investments as well as some growth investments. And that's why NEA was a great choice for me. I see. Yeah, that's circle back into, I suppose, you sustain interest in technology and, and commerce from undergrad. And this role is really allows you to blend that early interest and this the expertise in finance that you cultivate throughout the two years as an investment banker, right? At NEA, you mainly focus on enterprise investing, especially on open source infrastructure, DevOps, data analytics, as well as productivity SaaS. Our curiosity, like, you know, when you first join as a new associate at the firm, How do you prove your value upfront in venture deals, particularly in some of those deals with co-investors or even maybe people you want to collaborate with in the future? Yeah, it's a great question because I think when you're first starting out as an associate at a venture firm, you have a lot of imposter syndrome or how can I be helpful when you haven't done a lot of these things before? And the best advice I can give someone is focus, you know, both in what you decide to spend your time in industry is for me, it was infrastructure, data, I like to open source companies. And it was really important for me to become an expert in those spaces. The only thing I had over other people who'd been in the industry longer is a time advantage, right? I was going to really spend the time to get up to speed. And you talk to entrepreneurs who are open source entrepreneurs, they can immediately tell the difference between an investor who really understands open source investing versus someone who's never really spent any time in that space. And in venture, you really don't get any prizes for being second place. So 
you have to spend your time wisely, invest in a few companies that you want to build a close relationship with and really double, triple down in how do you be helpful to those particular companies you have conviction in. Otherwise you'll spread yourself way too thin and it won't be a successful strategy. So you mentioned that part about the velocity, the movement, like how, how do you like get up to speed real quick, be learning about this different technology landscape? How does it actually, you know, look like on a day-to-day basis? Like do you like schedule a lot, a lot of meetings with different founders? Like how do you keep up to date with trends or reports about this technology? I'm just curious to hear your playbook in terms of executing that. Yeah, I think in building a thesis, it has to be both proactive and reactive. So as an example, in the beginning of 2019, I was really excited about the data analytics space and wanted to craft an idea for where I wanted to invest. So it was a combination of speaking to lots of companies, hearing about their pain points firsthand, building a picture in my mind where there were opportunities to invest, coupled with reading a lot, actually testing and trying out some of the software myself to form a firsthand opinion, and then meet as many companies in that related space as possible so that you have both a boots on the ground point of view of where the pain is and really following that in finding companies that help address opportunities that aren't solved yet. Thanks for sharing that. I just want to quickly hear your thoughts on this question a little bit. It sounds like from the outside, venture is a very prestigious job where it's hard to get in. And, and also, you know, there's a lot of different uh, misunderstanding about the industry and the role. So from, from an insider perspective, what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about being a VC? Hmm, that's a good question. I think VCs do a really great job of broadcasting their thoughts a lot. And, you know, it seems that can be glamorous at times and that they're on the cutting edge of what's next. I think one of the things that people don't realize about venture is that it's a very individual sport. And a lot of times, you know, you don't have a sense of near-term goals sometimes, right? Like you're constantly thinking about what did I accomplish this week or this month? And your timescales are just very, very different because even if you are able to invest, that's not success yet. Success is investing in a company that then turns into a big outcome. And so the time scales for venture can be really different. Yeah. So having that mindset of playing the long-term game and optimize for 10 years in the future, I think delay gratification, which is not easy to adopt for most people in general. Thanks for sharing that valuable perspective. So let's investigate a couple of your any investment that I was supposed to doing a bit of homework on. So you led the Series A investment of Metabase, which is an open source business intelligence software project back in 2019. So what are some of the key factors that trigger you to make this investment? Yeah, so I do a lot of open source investing and I was tracking Metabase and it seemed like their community was really taking off. And I had done some customer calls and people really lit up. They enjoyed Metabase, which is rare to see for a BI system. And I wanted to get in front of the company been a lot of effort trying to get in front of Samir, the CEO. And at first he gave me the stiff arm and he was heads down, didn't want to talk to NEA because we had invested in Tableau, but ultimately got him 
to take a meeting. And from that meeting to investment was about a week turnaround because I had done the homework up front, had conviction that this was an interesting new player in, in a big category. And just the joy and excitement that customers had led my enthusiasm for this investment. Obviously, like open source is a big term. And when you mentioned enthusiasm and engagement, I'm just curious, like, how do you actually quantitatively evaluate some of those? How do they measure metrics, right? Like, I think most people know that when we're looking at an open source project, they usually just look at GitHub stars, but those are can be vanity metrics at points. What are some other criteria that people who are building open source project can optimize for if they want to get attention from an investor? Yeah, I was mostly interested in stars and contributors for Metabase at the beginning, but the metrics that I had more conviction or more excited about were not widely available. You learn about it when you actually spend time with a company. And for me with Metabase, it was a few things. One, just the growth of active servers. So how quickly the adoption was happening for Metabase, as well as they were able to track some metrics on time spent on the platform and they have crazy engagement in terms of how many daily active users per weekly active users per monthly active users, people are using Metabase a lot and they use it pretty much every day. And that for me was the biggest tell that this is a critical system and people enjoy spending time in Metabase. And and I believe you're still uh, sitting on the board of the company, right? How do you see the company progress in the next few years? Yeah, we have some exciting news that Metabase will be sharing soon, but Company's doing super well, feel really good about this investment. They offered a cloud-hosted version of Metabase at the beginning of last year, which is doing really well, makes it even easier to get started with Metabase. And I think that they have this unique opportunity to help with self-serve analytics, which is a very hard problem in companies, people who don't have technical backgrounds, who aren't familiar with SQL, have a pretty easy time just asking questions of Metabase and getting answers that they need. And that I think is one of the hardest problems to solve from a just making sure that everyone can be data consumers within a company that Metabase does a phenomenal job of. And be sure to include the uh, product website in the show notes so people can take a look. We also got involved with various rounds of any investment on Sentry which is an application monitoring platform that helps developers to monitor apps in real time to catch bugs early. So what about the the product as well as the Sentry team that stood out to you? Yeah, Sentry is an interesting story. I love the founding story here because David and Chris built a platform that was that they needed as developers. You know, it's a known fact that when you ship code, it's going to crash inevitably and you need to have great insight to figuring out what went wrong. And a lot of open source companies don't monetize day one. Sentry did. They let developers put their credit cards down and they were profitable before they took any investment. And I think that is a great testament to they really understand their customer well. They're building for developers because they are developers. And the North Star for this company has remained really clear from day one. They want to be the very best application performance monitoring platform built for developers, not built for ops. And I think they really do deliver on that promise. And it's just a lot of fun working with this team. They really know the space well. They're whip smart. 
And we have a lot of fun at the board meetings too. From what I gather from the website, they released some new product that really bring observability to the development lifecycle, which is always going to be a big challenge for any of the technical stack that big and small organization. Another interesting investment that you made was back in October 2020. And this is the Series B route for any scale. And this is an end-to-end computing platform that makes building and managing a scale application across clouds as easy as developing an app on a single computer. Could you mind kind of going over the details of this investment with AnyScale? Yeah, so AnyScale was founded by an entrepreneur that was well-known to NEA, Jan Stoika. And my partner, Pete, backed a number of Jan's previous companies, Conviva. Jan went on to be a co-founder of Databricks. And his third company, he's the chairman of AnyScale. And this is the company behind the open source project, Ray. And what we really loved about this company besides the team is they're at the cutting edge of ML. They make it possible to do things that weren't possible before by massively parallelizing your compute. And so if you have reinforcement learning use cases, Ray is the best place to go to actually solve your problems. And in terms of their open source adoption community, they've also been able to really strike a chord and, and resonate with a hard problem for people and we're really excited about that one as well. Like related to the problem that any scale is, is solving right now, what is anything particular about distributed computing for ML that is very hard that, that you think any scale was able to tackle? I guess my question is like, can you double click on the pain point that they actually is, is solving? Yeah, if you want to optimize in your models for ML, it's pretty hard to figure out how to, to tune your models to be the most performant and any scale can help you come up with the optimal solution for reinforcement learning. It's also a, a computationally complex problem. It needs a lot of resources. Ray helps you solve that problem much more easily. What they do is they can intuit which problems need to be solved sequentially versus which problems can be done in parallel. And they make it dead simple for Python developers to just scale out their models and have a lot more speed and ease when they're building these very large ML models. Going back to your point about the open source project and community evangelism, I think Dre was a very popular one among developers and ML engineers community. I think they have these like summit events where people keep talks, practitioners sharing use cases, how they was using race that are speed company. So from that angle, it seems like there's another use case of like a company that does a great strategy with getting open source adoption. Lastly, I want to talk about your most recent investment on the seed route of Dataflow. And this is a data observability platform that equips analytics engineers with the tools to address data quality issues. Again, like this is a whole another category that we're talking about. So what about the specific product and the Dataflow team that resonate a lot with you? Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Sentry. I think, you know, Sentry solves the problem for developers that your code's going to crash, so you better plan for it. Datafold, it's a similar problem that they're tackling, but for the analytics space, right, you're inevitably going to introduce mistakes into your data model, and you want to be able to spot that as soon as possible. So they're starting with this great data diff product, which lets you really understand the shape of your data. And if you do have 
logic in your models that aren't quite right, or you've introduced an error, data fold makes that really obvious to the data analyst. And I think quality is a big category and they've done a great job of moving the industry forward in respects to making sure that you're planning for it at the time of building models and it's not an afterthought. I see. So bringing that observability principles, borrowing that principles from engineering and apply that to analytics. You did a lot of investment in a variety of categories ranging from open source to data analytics to distributed computing studies, reflecting on your whole experience investing in different stage company across different landscape. What sort of advice have you been giving your portfolio companies in hiring decision and expanding their hiring team? And also like maybe vice versa, what advice should they ignore? Yeah, I mean, it's totally different depending on the stage of the company. At the very earliest stages, you know, it's hard to hire talent because you need to convince a potential employee you're a risk that's worth taking. And I think the best advice is just if you find talent early on, whether it's for a role you're specifically hiring for, or it's more of a generalist, bring on great people when you can find them. And then the next hire becomes sequentially easier. For later stage, it's very different, right? You have to find the right person for a specific pain point or or goal that you have. And so needing to hire specialists is more important. I think one of the mistakes that people make often later stage is waiting too long to bring on VPs. And really the, the reason for that is, you know, you, you can make individual hiring decisions only so quickly. And if you bring on a great VP, that will hopefully help recruit a whole nother team to your company. And you'll turn over that responsibility of building the infrastructure to make that team successful to a great leader. I'm just curious to hear thoughts on this. Was, was there any difference in terms of hiring and go-to-market strategy between uh, open source product versus enterprise product? Think about open source, a lot of it is product-led growth. And so having a go-to-market team that understands how to nurture that go-to-market where people are very familiar with your product, maybe they're using the open source, but not yet using a paid version of it. It's much more of a hybrid of a customer success role where you're figuring out what their needs are and how they can grow with your company versus coming in cold or doing a lot of outbounding. So it is a different go-to-market. And I think especially for technical product, you have to have a technical seller as well. And it's so important that you can both appeal to and understand the technical needs of your buyer. And so it is a pretty different go-to-market, whether you're talking about infrastructure versus the app layer as well. Yeah, thanks for distinguishing between those categories. You know, when I looking at your social, I found out like earlier this year, you work on this interesting side project where you build a metabase application to help investor pick winning open source startup. What, what was your motivation behind making it and what interesting insight about open source project that you dug out? Yeah, so I kept a tracker internally. I built like a low code way to track open source projects and GitHub stats for a long time, but it was smaller scale. It was an Excel spreadsheet that it was updated every week. And what I thought might be pretty interesting is actually open sourcing my work and sharing it with the rest of the community. So I decided to invest in building out Python scraper myself and 
hosting it on GCP and had Metabase as a wonderful front end that people could use to explore the data. And the motivation was really that um, I wanted to share these insights with other people in the community, both investors as well as entrepreneurs who cared a lot about these stocks, but there wasn't a great place that you could go and get the information that you cared about all in one spot. Uh, So that was a big motivation for me. And I think one of the interesting things is there's still so much noise in GitHub. There's not a key stat that you can point to that will lead to a great investment or that you, you know, is more important than anything else, but you can certainly track momentum of companies. And it has been the case that, you know, if you're able to get a lot of contributors, contributor growth, star growth over time, you've increased your visibility either because you're doing something really well on the product side or on the company side. And more often than not, that momentum does show promise for companies. And I'd be sure to include the database dashboard into the show notes so people can have a chance to explore those metrics and momentum that you brought up in your answers. want to move on and talk about the latest chapter of your professional career, which is you are currently a product manager at Fishtown Analytics, the makers of DBT, which is probably the most popular open source project in the data space at this point. And uh, you explain in the announcement that DBT is going to be a movement and will be the cornerstone of the modern data stack. Well, first of all, like, can you talk about your decision to join the company and the career transition from being a VC to being a practitioner? And then, yeah, can you talk about the DBT as, as a look at the future of data transformation and data tooling? Yeah. Yeah. I really just fell in love with DBT and the project and you know, at the core, it lets you transform your data, but it really is much more than that. It's, I describe it as a movement because it's completely changing the analytics industry and it completely changes the workflow of how analytics engineers can do their job. And what I love so much about it is because it's bringing a lot of best practices from the developer world into analytics. So things like documentation, testing, version control, CI, CD, These are now important pillars of the workflow in an analyst's job and DBT enables that. And so I think it's completely foundational to any data stack. It's where you define your business logic and ensure you have the infrastructure to scale as your data needs get more complex. And it's a non-negotiable for data teams today. I believe uh, the product that you mostly have managing is DBT Cloud, which is a hosted service that helps data analysts and engineers to productionize DBT deployment. Can you share a bit about the ongoing, some of the future roadmap with DBT Cloud? Yeah, so fundamentally DBT Cloud has two parts to it. It's the Cloud IDE, which is a nice way for analysts who are less familiar with Git to use DBT Cloud's IDE. It's really easy workflows where you can build your model and collaborate with other analysts on your team. And then there's also the kind of orchestration piece of it, which is a scheduler, CI, CD, everything that you need to help operationalize building and testing your DBT models. And so that's what my team focuses on. And one of the great parts about DBT is we also work in the open. So every quarter we have a great product event called staging. We had it last week where we talk about what we've been working on, what's on our roadmap and what you can expect from our team. And some of the big areas that we're gonna work on is continue to just invest in the foundations and the ID and the scheduler 
but also there's a lot we're doing on metadata, data quality and discoverability that I think is going to be a great area for us to go and tackle as well. Just in terms of some of the community initiatives that the, you know, your team and NDBD overall are executing, can you share a little bit about some of the resources, places that people can go to, to learn more about some of the product development as well as, as tutorials and things like that about DBT and, and Fishtown in general? Yeah, lots of great resources. So everyone should join the DBT Slack. It's such an, an amazing resource. I used to lurk in the DBT Slack all the time. It's where I learned a lot about the modern data stack what people's problems were, how to solve them. And it's this wonderful community where people are helping each other out, super active. I think, you know, there's certainly over 10,000 people in that Slack today, an amazing resource. I also think that we do a great job in our events. So staging is every quarter that talks about what's on the product roadmap. And we have more of an industry event at the end of the year called Coalesce, where Everyone can learn much more about what's happening at in the industry at large and how DBT plays a role in it. So those are some really great resources. And then the last one I'll plug because I just went through it myself, but we've opened up our training now online. So DBT Learn, it's a 10-hour course where you can go through and actually learn the fundamentals of DBT which is great. We used to do these classes in person, but we've moved it all online. And I think it's a wonderful educational resource for people just starting to up-level their practice in the analytics space. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those resources. Taking a step back and taking a look at the broader data tooling ecosystem, what remaining data challenges that you think are still underinvested? I think one of the biggest challenges in data is this natural tension between getting quality, building your infrastructure right and self-serve. So making sure that it's easy for others that don't have technical backgrounds to get what they need out of the data. So this natural tension between going fast and being right. And, you know, I, I think it's a hard problem to solve, but I'm, you know, hopeful that the worlds will be bridged more in the future and, and we'll be able to have the best of both worlds. Is that what DBT is trying to address at some level? Or do you think there's other tools that might be emerging that can handle that bigger gap as well? Yeah. yeah, DBT is really foundational. So it's how you structure your models, how you build mm-hmm. your analytics. And I'd say it's more towards the lens of how do you make sure you can trust your data today and the investment there takes some time. There's a learning curve for you to bring DBT onto your team. But the promise that we have is you won't regret it because people who weren't able to do transformations before because they're not engineers can. And so it's bringing accessibility. It's empowering people to do a scale that they weren't able to before. I still think that there is more that either DBD can do or other people can do and just letting more people be consumers of the data. It's a little bit of what Metabase does, but there's always this tension of, If you let everyone create data models or everyone be an analyst, how can you trust it? Or do you have challenges with data quality and are the foundations right? So that's the tension I'm talking about. And I think we're certainly trying to solve it at DPT and there are others as well that recognize that this is a hard problem to solve. Another idea is that it just came to mind, like I do see, you know, there's a lot of different new data tools coming out and they always do a lot of integration. 
DBT names who come up with one of the first blog posts where they try to integrate it with the product, right? So our curiosity, like taking a look at the broader um, data tooling landscape, how do you see tools being integrated together? I'm curious to hear about your perspective on the you know, interoperability for someone who's like a startup founder, for example, in this space, like how should they approach being friendly towards other tools and how should they position their product in the right category within the broader ecosystem? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we think about it a lot at Fishtown and DBT. It's because we're open source. We want to be interoperable with lots of other tools as well. And we think about our open source project, DBT, as really a standard for how you do transformation and how you build your models. And at the core of that technology is the compiler. And we want it to be absolutely everywhere. We want DBT to be the way you build your data stack. And you should also use other tools and we should work together with other parts of the ecosystem. Well, and it's really a kind of first principle for us that uh, we want to grow the pie versus think about gaining share from our competitors. We think this market is absolutely massive and we do a lot to invest and contribute back to the industry at large. So super important for us. And I think our goal here is moving the industry forward at the end of the day, if the analytics teams are more confused than when they started. That's a problem for everyone. So making sure that those handoffs between different layers of the stack is just so important. Yeah, absolutely. So, so having that like, positive sum game and you try to work together and, and like I said, expand the pie, which is definitely a very unique and refreshing part of you in business content in general. I mean, I was reading a couple of blog posts from Tristan Handy on, on his website and it seems like I think you said like success of the community is more important than the success of the company. That model is, is just really new to hear given the, the competitive landscape. And yeah, it seems like from your experience looking at this far, that has been the spread across the country as well. Yeah, definitely. I think the last question that I'm curious to hear is that thinking about your previous experience in world venture and, and now in startups, what do you see as the differences and similarities between being an investor and being a practitioner? Yeah, I think in product, it's pretty fun because I have to have two lenses that I use really frequently. It's my wide angle lens, thinking about the industry, where we need to go as a team, where we need to go as a product. How do we play in the broader ecosystem? How do we make the ecosystem better as a whole? But then I also have this zoom lens, right? I have to think really very deeply about each individual step that we have to take in order to achieve our goals. And so it's that constant kind of shifting in scales between wide angle and zoom that I have to handle in product. In venture, you really just have the wide angle lens. You're thinking more at the company level, the industry level, and making bets on the future. And the details, you kind of glaze over them at times because it's it's not relevant. If you spend too much time in the details, you might uh, forget to see the full picture or you won't be able to see the full picture. And I think that's the biggest difference in the two roles as I've seen it, but it, it's a fun challenge to be able to context switch and really exercise two different muscles that I have in product. That's a very interesting perspective. What tactics or strategies that I should use to switch into zoom in, being able to switch context effectively and, you know, go down the rabbit hole of a certain problem given their new role. Yeah, I think. It's because I've studied this space so long that the wide angle lens is so just ingrained in how I think. 
that it's almost like just constantly running in the background for me. And then the muscle I'm exercising the most day to day is that zoom, that thinking of things on the molecular level and thinking about what decisions we need to make today, this week to Mm -hmm. accomplish a goal that we have. And I have the benefit of, you know, subconsciously, I'm always, always thinking about, is this good for the company? Like, is this a good strategic decision we have? How does this play with others? But I don't have to work that muscle quite as much right now because it's just kind of so natural for me secondhand that all of my attention really is on that focus. Let's say for someone who's interested in becoming a data product manager, like what do you think are some of the fundamental skill set that they could cultivate early on in the career? I mean, the most important thing is understanding what the customer needs and spending a lot of time talking to different users of the product, understanding what alternatives there are, why people would want to use DBT over something else, just really understanding the voice of the customer is the most important thing. And then just keeping a really high bar and in delivering on that vision. Julia, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions. If you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the either venture or data community whose work you admire. Okay. Number one has to be Tristan Handy, the founder and CEO of Fishtown. I read everything that he writes. I think he's just a, a visionary. Ali Ghosti, the CEO of Databricks, and Dan Levine, who's an investor at Excel, also on the board of Century with me. Any entrepreneur would be super lucky to work with him. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate better foresight. So I just read Working Backwards, which is a really great book that gives tangible advice on what made Amazon so special. So highly recommend it. And then lastly, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? So one of our co-founders and chief product officers at Fishtown has a great tagline and it's Mo data, Mo problems. So I'd probably retweet something about that sentiment. So Julia, I really enjoy the conversation today, learning about your background, studying both CS and finance at Stanford, your early career as an investment banker at Catalyst Partners, your time as an enterprise investor at NEA, developing expertise in open source data startups, as well as infrastructure, various advice on how to cultivate, you know, stamina and venture and developing a wide lens in evaluating companies, most of the recent development in modern data stack your current role as a PM at Fish Analytics and the future of how this space is going to move. I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes so listeners have the chance to take a look and take deeper in some of the resources that you provided related to DBT as well as your career in general and the show if they're interested. Julia, really enjoy our conversation. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks so much, James. It's been a lot of fun. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.